Good morning again. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Romans chapter 1. If you've got one with you, we've got some also strategically placed under the chairs. If you want to grab one of those, we'll be on page 939. Romans chapter 1, page 939. We're continuing our series called Why Jesus? And uh, we've been looking at the common objections to the Christian faith. Uh, We've encouraged you to check out Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, where he lists almost the same list we're borrowing here for objections to the Christian faith. goes into a lot more detail. What we've been trying to do is then uh, connect those objections with scriptural passages that speak directly to these issues. We believe that there's really power in the scriptures to answer these questions. Um, It may not be the first place we would think to look. But we believe that God has spoken to us, that God communicates with his people because he loves us. He wants a relationship with us. And so Romans 1 talks about specifically the problem of science. The word science is from the Latin scientia, which just means knowledge. The problem of knowledge. And I would define this problem as an objection to the Christian faith by saying we live in a a hyper-scientific age. And what I mean by that is that we really have given over the the priesthood of our culture to science. We said the scientists are the priests. They're the ones with a direct line to truth. They're the ones that know how everything works. They know what goes on behind the curtain. And so what happens is people discover a little bit about how things work, maybe something that had a mystery to it before. They thought maybe spirits made it work or God made it work before. But now that they understand the the mechanics of it, They've now taken away their need for faith in God, and now they understand that science can explain everything. Um, Well, I I believe, and I I think most of you would agree, that science can't actually explain everything. And when we talk about science, I just want to define terms for us. Jack Collins, in his book, uh, Science and Faith, where is it, right here, in this book, Science and Faith, he has a helpful definition of science that I wrote down that I thought was a good one that was kind of like a neutral definition He says, a science is a discipline in which one studies features of the world around us and then tries to describe his observations systematically and critically. So that's kind of a neutral definition. But what's happened when you read statements by like the National Science Teachers Associations and different things like that is is they lean towards saying, and some outright say this, that, that that's all there is. That the world we can observe is all that exists and there's no possibility of any knowledge beyond observation of the rules in the world that we see. And so that's where we would differ and we would say that they've actually jumped out of science by making that kind of statement. And so if, if, we, just, if we just keep sciences observing what we see in the world and making critical claims about that and testing things, then, then we can all agree on what science is. But what's happened in our culture uh, through the, just the popularity of Darwinism and evolutionary theory is what we've seen at a micro level, we, would, we could call it microevolution, right? We, we see things evolve, we see the way dogs breed, we see uh, Darwin's observations of finches on the Galapagos Islands, right? The change in their beaks, survival of the fittest, we see that at a micro level, um, everybody acknowledges that, and then this huge leap is made, really a philosophical, religious leap is made that that then explains everything. <laughs> that then, you know, species to species jumps happen because of that. And, be, and then uh, the primordial soup, lightning struck, and that turned into organisms. You know, I mean, there's these huge jumps that are made that are really religious claims based on a, an observable thing. We, we see microevolution, but that doesn't prove macro 
evolution. So that would be kind of my statement up front that, that I believe there's a lot of truth in evolutionary science, but at the micro level, right? We, we, we can observe things, we watch things happen, we can test those things, that's science. But when you start making grand claims about theories of everything, um, then we're in the category of what Collins calls uh, neo-Darwinism. It's kind of a neo-Darwinism. It's actually claiming even more than Darwin himself claimed, although I wouldn't have agreed with everything Darwin said either. I've got a couple of other books I'd like you to check out as well if you get a chance, if you're interested in studying more on the subject. We've got a book called The Case for a Creator by Lee Strobel. It's this orange book, and it's a great book. He, he writes as an investigative journalist and as a lawyer, so he kind of builds a case, and he interviews different experts. It's really well done. And then there's one written by a doctor called What Darwin Didn't Know by Jeffrey Simmons. Uh, and it's really fascinating because um, you can tell by the title he's disagreeing with Darwin, but what he does is he really presses into this idea called irreducible complexity. And irreducible complexity basically states that if you were to take the flagellum off of uh, the part of a cell that makes it move, then it wouldn't function anymore. It's, it's this idea that, um, like with a mouse trap, if you take one part out of a mouse trap, it can't function anymore. And so when you do that in the animal world, when you have pieces missing, then there's no possibility of a transitionary form. So we can see uh, a finch having a child, a baby finch with a bigger or smaller beak, right? That's within their DNA, and that's an easy transition to make. But we, we can't see it changing into something completely different in micro steps where none of those micro steps would have been a functioning animal or where it would have had functional parts. That, that whole uh, study of thought is called irreducible complexity. And so... He does a great job of just uncovering a lot of different examples of that in nature, which actually leads us to praise God, which leads us to say, wow, God is amazing. It's complex. I, this blows my mind. He's incredible. Um, and so I, recognize, I recommend that book to you. And the Science and Faith by Jack Collins. And then these are more on the how we know things. This is Leslie Newbigin, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. And then this is John Frame, The Doctrine of the Knowledge of God. And it's just more dealing with how do we know anything? Like, how do we have science about, about anything? Not just hard science, biology, chemistry, but how do we know things? Um, and how does that relate to our knowledge of God and how he's revealed himself in the world? So great books I would recommend. Um, but we want to start with Romans 1. We're going to start with what does Romans 1 tell us about science, about how we know things, what we do know. And I just want to let you know that if, if you come from a position of doubt, about uh, God's revelation, if you come from a position of science does explain everything, I'm, I'm so glad you're here. I would love to hear any thoughts you have about what I say today. I'd, I'd love feedback. I'd love to learn from you. Obviously, I have a position. I have a bias, right? Um, but hopefully, I'm being very transparent about it, and hopefully, we can have a conversation. Um, but I want you to just try. I want you to just kind of try to put yourself in the shoes Imagine yourself as a believer. Try on for size what God has to say about knowledge and what we as mankind do with the knowledge that we have of the world. I'm going to start in verse 16. Romans 1:16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, literally the, the healing and restoration, the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been 
clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. I'm going to ask God's help as we look at this together. We pray for us. God, we ask that you would teach us. Um, I ask for open minds for those of us uh, that believe you, that trust what your word says. We, we pray for open minds, God, that you would continue to, to teach us to reform and reshape our minds and our understanding of the world you've made. We pray also for an openness for those who, who don't believe, that doubt you. We, we just pray that they'd be willing uh, to consider. They'd w- be willing to consider who you are and what you have to say. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a kid, I remember enjoying uh, playing with my mom's glasses. My mom wore glasses. I don't, I don't wear glasses. Just turned 40, so probably like within a week I'll need them, right? But so far, don't, don't wear them yet. And uh, so I'd put on my mom's glasses. She had bifocals and astigmatism. And so I guess kind of like all the things you could have wrong with, with your eyes and, and needed glasses to correct that. So multiple things are going on with those glasses. When I would put them on... Um, it would make things look really weird in our house. I mean, it would just be like things were moving and I couldn't walk right. And so, so it was kind of fun. I just remember like as a 10-year-old trying to walk around the house and it looked like the floor was moving. It was just kind of like this weird trip I was on. Um, now, now, if I were to do that in a dangerous place, right? Like if I were walking along uh, uh, a ledge in a tall building, right? That, that'd be a really stupid place to try on my mom's glasses, right? So I would do it in a safe place. I would do it in a place where I knew I was okay, where, you know, if I ran into the furniture, it wasn't a big deal. I'd fall over the couch. Everything would be okay. You know, it wasn't in a dangerous place. It was in a safe place. But I would enjoy trying it on and seeing things from a different perspective. Um, When we think about how we interpret the world, we have to recognize that we all have a lens through which we're looking, right? Um, So the, the values that you have, the culture that you grew up in, um, how you see the world, how you understand truth. We, we all have a lens that we're wearing. Now, understanding the lens we wear, understanding the assumptions that we have is, is really helpful in helping us figure things out. The, the scripture says in Romans 1 that we can know the truth, but that we try not to. That there's a part of us that doesn't want to know the truth. And so this morning, my challenge for you is just to consider that. Just to consider that maybe you're wearing the wrong prescription. Maybe you've borrowed the wrong glasses. Maybe you're looking at the world the wrong way. And I'd ask you to pray about that. I'd ask you to consider that. I'd ask you to try on another pair of glasses. I'd ask you to reconsider how you interpret what you see in the world. And that's part of the job of science is to experiment, right? Is to try different things to see if they make sense of the data. And I would, I would challenge you that what God has to say about us in the world actually makes sense of the data. That when we talk about faith and reason and science, we're not saying that, that science and reason and logic goes completely against faith and trust in God. 
I would say it's, it's quite reasonable to trust in the God of the universe. The, the first thing that I want us to consider as we look at this is that, that we think of science as our really means of salvation in this world. And so I, I want to challenge us that, that the scriptures say that science alone can't heal us. Um, so it's, it's the kind of common default of our culture to think science knows everything, science is the authority, science is what truth is all about, and I want to just challenge us that perhaps science can't alone heal us. It's not, it's not enough. It can't really save us. I use that word heal because it's really the word salvation, soter in the Greek. It really has that healing sense. It means healing, restoring someone. We know that there's something wrong with us morally. We know that there's something wrong with our, our souls there's something broken in the world, and only Christianity makes sense of the data. The data that says that we are glorious and we're troubled and broken. Only Christianity makes sense of, of that data. Paul says in verse 16, I'm, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Gospel is literally good news. This gospel, good message, we looked at it last week. It's this good message of who Jesus is, what he's accomplished for us. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of that. There's actual power in it. He says it's the power of God for salvation or for healing or for restoration to everyone who believes. And I think it's clear from Scripture, I just have to make this clear, that when it talks about salvation and healing for us, it doesn't necessarily mean immediate physical healing, but we're talking about the future that the world is hurtling towards of God making all things right, God wiping away every tear. So, so my back hurts, and my back may hurt until I die, right? God may choose to heal it. I, I believe he could if he wanted to. But my real hope is not in him healing my back next week. My real hope is in the future I'm headed towards where there's no more pain. And, and there's no more sin, right? This future where I, just, I love people perfectly. I love him perfectly. That's the, that's the future we're headed towards. So that's really ultimate salvation, ultimate healing. And that, that's our hope. Like I said, God, God can heal along the way, but I think what he's talking about here in verse 16 is this salvation, this ultimate healing for everyone who believes, who trusts. He says to the Jew first, but also to the Greek, right? God, God worked through the Jewish people. His Savior was Jewish. He came through the Jewish people, but it's also for all, for Greeks as well, which is really uh, Paul's just catch-all for every, everybody else. Verse 17 says, For in, the, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul here is saying that we have faith in the good message of Jesus and that that heals us. And again, he's not saying something irrational, something non-scientific. What he's saying is something reasonable. That Jesus makes sense of the world. That God is holy. We know there's something wrong with us. We know we're not as good as we could be or should be. And the story of the Bible makes sense of that. There's an all-holy God that created everything good and it's fallen from that good state. But there's still remnants of glory. There's still pictures of his beauty, his awesomeness. But we've fallen from that and we need redemption. We need forgiveness that only Jesus can offer. Jesus took our sins upon himself and he gives us his righteousness. It's the good news of who Jesus is and how he rescues us or, or heals us or saves us. And so just starting off the bat here, Paul is saying it's not through the knowledge of the world that you're saved, but it's through trust in God. Through faith. That's what heals us. Trusting Him. Now again, I don't, I don't believe that's in contradiction to science or in contradiction to logic or in contradiction to reason. It's reasonable. 
but it's not the same thing. And we need to make sure we're clear about that. Because a lot of people today paint the picture that they're bitter enemies, right? That there's science and that there's faith, and they're bitter enemies. And that's why I'd recommend this book, Science and Faith. It compares the two things. They, they don't necessarily have to be in disagreement. There's a term philosophically sometimes referred to fideism, which means uh, you just throw reason out the window. It's just all faith, right? Kind of more of an existential kind of just leap of faith type idea. And, that, and that's not what we're arguing for. We're, we're arguing for a reasonable faith, a reasonable trust in a trustworthy God. That, that's what we're arguing for. So I have a picture here of glasses. Um, if, if you get the right prescription, then you'll see things properly. If you have trouble reading, if you have trouble seeing, I, I see a lot of you have glasses. Some of you have contacts, right? Invisible glasses. You've got to have the right, you've got to have the right prescription so that you can see things clearly. And that's what I would ask you to consider. Do, do you have the right prescription? Are you, are you seeing things clearly? Is, is your worldview making sense of all the data? Everything that you see, does it, is it coherent? Does it go together? And I would challenge you that Christianity actually is coherent. Christianity is actually the pair of glasses that makes sense of the world that we see. Calvin talked about the idea of, of there being general revelation and special revelation. And so general revelation is the just general revealing of, of the things we see about the world and know about God from creation. That We'll talk about a little more here. And then there's special revelation, the gospel, the scriptures, God speaking to us. We believe God has spoken to us very specially through the scriptures and through the good news of Jesus. And so that special revelation of the gospel then heals our inability to see things. It, it enables us then to reasonably make sense of the data, to read the general revelation and make sense of what we see in the world. Then we can know things rightly. My question for you is, is what do you believe is going to heal you? So, so my premise is that science alone can't heal us and that that's where we tend to go, right? You know what's the most frustrating thing in the world is when you go to the doctor and they don't know what's wrong with you? Does that ever happen to any of you? It happened, it's happened to me before. You go to the doctor and they don't know what's wrong with you and there's this little part of you that is like, how dare you, right? Like your job is to know everything. You're supposed to be able to figure this all out. I've given my soul to this religion of science and you can't help me? And we can get really bitter, right? I usually don't say all that out loud. But <laughs> these little feelings, these little conversations I have in my heart. Okay. And that reveal, you know, when we have that kind of anger flare up or those kind of weird feelings pop up out of nowhere, those are, those are triggers, those are signs for us. That like, hey, there's, there's something going on there. And that's showing me that I had faith that science could heal me, that medicine could heal me, that picking the right kind of doctor could heal me. The right self-help book could heal me. My question for you this morning is, what is your faith in? Because we all trust in something. We all have faith in something. So what is your trust in? Is your trust in science? I think most of our culture today would say, yeah, that's, that's the way to know truth, science. It's uh, pure and always comes up with the right answers, right? I say that with a little sarcasm. <laughs> What's your trust in? Is your trust in the next boyfriend or next girlfriend? Is your trust in being in the right neighborhood? Is your trust in just, I'm never going to, I'm not going to be like my parents, I'm going to do things differently? What is, your, what is your faith in? What is your trust in? And is it strong enough to heal you? Can it change you? Can it fix what's wrong with the world? That's my question. I just want to dare you to try on a different pair of glasses. I just want to dare you to consider 
another worldview to consider seeing things differently maybe than you've been seeing them already. And ask yourself, what is it you're trusting in right now? When you get really angry, or you get really depressed, whatever those things are, those, those flare-ups in your heart, those are triggers. Those are, those are pointing you towards what it is. That, that's a sign for you saying that, that's probably what you're trusting in. Order, peace, family, whatever it may be. It's a sign that, that that Savior is letting you down and you're, you're angry or you're despairing because of it. The next thing that, that Paul points out here is that science actually does point to God. So science can't really heal us by itself, right? But science actually points us to God. Science actually does point us to God. Romans 1.18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And I have to explain that a little bit because he's using this archaic, like old-fashioned Bible language we don't like, right? He says the wrath of God is revealed. We don't like that kind of stuff. Um, we don't believe in wrath anymore. And what's scary is when you, when you look at the rest of chapter 1, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but just when you look at the rest of chapter 1, it says that the way that God's wrath is revealed is that he gives us our desires. That's the most horrible thing that God could do to us. This, this horrible judging wrath is that he lets us have what we want. He just says, okay. Um, so read, read the rest of chapter 1 when you get a chance. But he's saying the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So he's saying we, we suppress the truth. The truth is there and we squeeze it down. We, we try to deny it. You may remember this story I've shared with you from the Chronicles of Narnia. It's one of the stories called The Magician's Nephew. And the magician in the story was doing magic and denying God. And this character that kind of is supposed to be like Jesus in the story is this great lion. And he's creating this world, Narnia. And as he creates the world, Narnia, he creates it by singing. And he's singing this beautiful song. And the animals and the plants are coming up out of the ground. It's just this really kind of cool allegory of creation. But Uncle Andrew can't hear him singing. He starts off hearing him singing, but he says, it's only a lion. The lion can't sing. That couldn't be. I must be crazy. And it shows this process in story form, which is why stories are so great, because it helps us to kind of see things we wouldn't normally understand from a propositional standpoint. But in the story, you see him saying, it can't be singing. It can't be beauty that I'm hearing. It must be a snarl. And his heart moved to a place where that's all he could hear was a snarl. And Lewis says the problem with uh, making yourself stupider is that it, it works, right? Like you can, you can actually make yourself stupider where you can't see the beauty anymore. You can't hear the beauty anymore. You can't recognize singing any longer as singing. You've demystified it so much and taken God out of the picture that it's not there anymore. And it says in verse 19, we suppress the truth. Or in verse 18, we suppress the truth. Verse 19 says... For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And God has clearly revealed himself. God is knowable. We're going to look at some quotes about that from John Frame's book uh, here at the end of our, of our day. But he's saying God is knowable. We can know him and he's revealed himself, but we take that knowledge and we suppress it. Verse 20 says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. 
there's, there's no excuse. He's shown himself to us. Like he's like, here I am. And we're like, no, I'm going to ignore you. I have a picture here of an airport sign. A few weeks back, I got to go to Guatemala with Compassion International. And y'all, a lot of you heard about that. I got to bring another pastor friend in town, Mark Hoover, from the Journey Church. So we got to go together. It was exciting for us to have some bonding and hang out. And uh, Mark is driving and I'm navigating, which when I told the story earlier, my, I think my wife started to giggle just hearing that I was navigating. But I was, I was navigating and uh, I've been to the Austin airport a thousand times, maybe not a thousand times, but a lot of times. And I just somehow I just missed it, right? The, the signs were there. Actually, part of me wants to say the signs weren't really there, but the signs were there. The signs were there and I just didn't, I didn't pay attention. I just ignored the signs. The scripture says it's really even worse for us. It's not just that we're like, hmm, you know, looking off the other way when he reveals himself, but, but we see him. It'd be like we were driving to the airport and I saw the sign. I was like, that can't be it. That's not the sign. I refuse to believe it. Right? I mean, that's, that's more like what's happening in Romans 1. We're just, we're refusing to acknowledge it. One of the ways I, I see this taking place in the science debate is with DNA. Um, DNA is this incredible um, encoding of information. Um, it's, this, it's this basically software for us, you know. It just has all the information about what we're like and people are studying it, studying it, studying it. And what happens is when uh, people that deny that God exists look at the intricacy of that, they say, well, the DNA of this simple animal is built from the same pieces and looks the same as the DNA of this complex animal. Therefore, they had to evolve, right? Therefore, they have to be related uh, in this common descent. And so they just take it as one more proof that there was no God involved in the process, that it all just kind of happened by accident, by random chance. So the way Collins would define uh, this kind of thinking is neo-Darwinism that says evolution is the explanation for everything, not just how a few animals might change on this island, but for everything, right? Making that big leap and it's the explanation for everything. So then every piece of data that comes in has to reinforce, well, it's all an accident. But I just want you to think about the idea of, of they've discovered an, an alphabet in our bodies. Like, like in all creatures, we, we have an alphabet. We have, we have code. We have software built into all of us. So random chance created information. Random chance wrote books. Random chance put recipe cards in all of us that, that tell how to cook what we are. Like that... That just, that makes no sense to me. Sometimes I think we just have to bring common sense back to the table and, and recognize that, that the things that we discover point to an intelligence. Oftentimes it's called the intelligent design movement, that the things that we see point to an intelligent designer. There's, there's got to be an intelligence outside of ourselves that created these things, that, that made these things, that designed these things. And I believe DNA is one of these interesting little pieces of information that points to that. It's actually a huge piece of information. There's a great interview in this book, The Case for the Creator, the orange one on the bottom, with Stephen Meyer about DNA and, and more details about how all that works. It's really fascinating. It can give you more of the details. I encourage you to chase down these sorts of evidences and understand them better for yourself. Uh, one of the things that's interesting is that since that book has been published, they've even discovered more things about DNA. Previously, they thought there were these strands of what they called junk DNA that were 
pointers to evolution, you know, wasted DNA from trial and error of evolution, and now they understand that that junk DNA is actually even more complexly encoded information they never previously understood. So there's no such thing as junk DNA. It's just code upon code, layer upon layer of complex information. It's incredible. It's amazing. And again, it's a a sign of intelligence, I believe. So my question for you is then, when you see something really beautiful, when you see something really complex, when you see something really intelligent, really reasonable, really awesome looking, and you look at it, do you say accident. I mean, is that what your heart says? Your heart says, huh, random. Accident. What do you say? That's beautiful. I wonder who made that. But the Bible says that our, our, we should say, that's beautiful. We should say, that's awesome. It should cause us to praise God. It should cause us to think God is amazing. The last thing I want us to consider is how science is corrupted by our hearts. Science can be corrupted by our hearts. Um, it can change, our hearts can change the way we see, interpret, and use the data. Look at verse 21 in Romans 1. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So, so something happened. Like, we stopped working properly. The C.S. Lewis uh, illustration with the magician's nephew story he actually became stupider. He, got, he lost the ability to recognize the beauty of the song that Aslan was singing. Do you see that process and see how that happens? As you deny the ability to hear beauty, as you say that beauty's not there, that design's not there, you lose the ability to see that beauty and to see that design. Their hearts were dark. In verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. They became stupid. Verse 23, and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. I have to stop here. It says, they exchange the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. When I read this verse, my mind immediately goes to Egyptian hieroglyphics. I don't know if, you, if your mind jumps to Egyptian hieroglyphics when you hear things like this. But like I'm imagining... Uh, a horse-headed god-man, right? You know what I'm talking about? And these, these hieroglyphics? Or a frog-headed man that they would worship? And I'm thinking, oh, Paul's talking about these primitive people in the old days. They weren't as smart as me. They weren't as scientific as me, right? And that's what he's talking about. Crazy people worshiping frog-headed man. But <laughs> I don't think that's really what he's saying. I think he's talking much more broadly than this. That, that may be one development of our worshiping of the creation instead of the creator, is that we bow down to frog-headed man. But what, what he says in the text is that any time we worship anything other than the true creator God, we're doing the same thing. Right? So when you're bowing down to the next boyfriend or girlfriend as your salvation, you, you're worshiping frog-headed man. I mean, when you're bowing down to the next promotion, the next job, a better neighborhood, when you're, when you're bowing down to those things, when you're giving your life to those things, you're worshiping the, the horsehead man or the froghead man or whatever it may be. You're doing the same thing. So don't stand over here. And like I said, I, I tend to do this too. Don't stand over on the side and say, well, I'm sophisticated and scientific. I would never bow down to those things. While you are at that very moment bowing down to created things instead of the creator. We enslave ourselves to these things. He goes on and he says, 
birds, animals, creeping things. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. J. Bujaszewski has this great article called Escape from Nihilism, and it talks about his own transformation from being a UT professor that espoused nihilism, which is uh, basically the philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche that says, kind of like, since there is no right and wrong, it doesn't matter what we do, there's no such thing as beauty or morality, just kind of take what you want, right? Heavily influential to Hitler. Um, in, this, in this essay, he talks about what that does to your soul. He says, imagine that you're like opening up the control panels of your minds and you're ripping out all the wires that have the image of God stamped on them. Because the problem is you have to just keep ripping because everything has the image of God stamped on it. And that's the process that takes place here. We're just like ripping it. No, I can't. Oh, no, beauty. Oh, design. No, I've got to rip that out. And love. No, justice. I've got to rip that out too. And we, we're, we're making ourselves non-human in the process. There's, there's a lot of movies and stories that talk about this struggle we have with science and what to do with science. I thought a good example of this is the Iron Man movie. There's a picture of Iron Man. So Iron Man, if you don't know the story, kind of the, somewhat the same story in all three movies. He's this... He's this I didn't mean that as a jab. I, I enjoyed the movies. But he's, a, uh, he's this kind of narcissistic guy who, who builds his identity on being smarter than everybody else. And this produces, his, his science produces this great talent. And the struggle that he has interpersonally, and they, they play this pretty well in the stories, is, is whether he's going to really worship that and lean into that. That's going to be his whole identity. Or he's going to use his science. Is he going to use his talents to serve others? I think that's a great picture for us. In this last movie, the, the bad guys are the ones that become obsessed with their science and make it all about them. Well, I would say it's not... It makes it clear on the big screen for us, but really all of us do that. All of us take our science, even if you're not a scientist, right? Just substitute the word. You take your knowledge of the world, whatever you're good at, whatever you're gifted at, whatever makes me uh, valuable to others, I can take that and I can then make that my identity. I can wear it as a suit and think that I, I don't exist apart from it. And not acknowledge the, the value that God gives me as his child. I'm made in the image of God. And then, yeah, he gives me some science. He gives me some knowledge. He gives me technology or resources or talents to use. But those are to be used for his glory. Those are to be used to, to promote him, to image him. I'm made in the image of God. My job is to reflect his image, to share him with others. His love, his justice, his mercy. That's, that's our job. That's what we're made for. It may just be me, but I, sometimes I squander the science, the knowledge, the resources I'm given. And I recognize that the problem's not with the science. The problem's with me. The problem's with my heart. And that's what, that's what Romans 1 is saying. The problem is with our own heart, with our own posture before God. Are we willing to submit to Him? Are we willing to see the world through His lens? When we say in the... In the service, we pause for confession. The word confession in the Greek is homo, homo legeo. It is literally say the same words as. Confession is not about us slapping ourselves with a whip. Confession is us being willing to say the same thing that God says about who we are and our reality and our place in the world. 
Are you willing to see things the way that God sees them? Are you willing to say the same things that God says about you and about the world? As we do that, I would argue from Romans, that's how we become fully human. That's how we actually use our science to honor him and use our science to love others, to help others. But there's, a, you know, there's a whole range of different views when it comes to science, when it comes to how do you, how do you work out what seem like conflicts between science and the Bible. I, I said this last week, I believe sometimes we misunderstand science. Sometimes we misunderstand the Bible. Sometimes it's a little bit of both. And Christians are going to fall out on all different sides of this category. The books I'm recommending to you, actually, they're different categories. You don't have, a, have to have a particular view about how science gels with the Bible to belong to this church. We would say that a belief in the salvation and resurrection of Jesus and what he did for us on the cross is much more central than how many years the earth has been here. Now, I think it's helpful to look into those things. It's helpful to think about those things. And I would say every Christian should kind of investigate those, consider. And I'd encourage you to read some of these books. But the bottom line is our heart posture before God. The bottom line is, are you willing to submit to God? Are you willing to submit to what he says? John Frame, in his book, The Doctrine of the Knowledge of God, says this. He says, if God is who Scripture says he is, there are no barriers to knowing him. Scripture says he's knowable. He's both God, right? That means he's out there, he's big, he's transcendent, and he's also knowable. He's a covenant God. He's a God who is near. He is Emmanuel, God with us, which means he's, he's imminent. He's, he's here. So he's knowable and he's infinite, both at the same time. Some religions would say he's, he's infinite and unknowable. Other religions would say he's imminent uh, and he's just here and there's, there's no longer any distinction between the creature and the creator. The God of the Bible, I believe, makes sense of the data we have, the world that we see, what we know about our own hearts. It says God is both transcendent, he's huge, and he's imminent, he's close, and he loves us, and he's knowable. Frame says this, Views about God, Christian and non-Christian alike, always arise from one's personal relation to God, from a person's ethical and religious orientation. So I've quoted this a million times, uh, the, the two beliefs of an atheist, there is no God, and I hate him. And so I just, I just want to challenge you on that. I just want to challenge you that maybe your second belief is driving your first belief. Say, there is no God and I hate him. Well, maybe the fact that you hate him that much is making it hard for you to believe in him. And Frame says it this way. He says, once you deny the lordship of God, you will not be able to defend his knowability. Only if God is who scripture says he is, may we claim to know him. That's really the only knowable God. It's the only option. It's the only scientifically coherent, rational belief. Again, I'm not saying science and belief are the same thing, but I'm saying our trust in the God who's revealed himself in the Bible is reasonable. And it's our only hope. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us, and we thank you that you gave yourself for us in Jesus. I pray that you'd help us to see the world as created by you and for you, that we would believe Genesis 1-1 in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We thank you for that. We pray that you would help us as Christians to get along with each other as we interpret uh, all the rest of the Bible in different ways. But we pray that we would do it with a heart posture of submission to you, thankfulness to you, 
pray that that would help us to love each other and to love you well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.